Greetings from East Lothian and uh, from the other Shearer family, who you probably know. The family is increasing, not that Sarah's had another baby, but they've fostered a wee one, as some of you will know. African, by birth, born in the UK, she is the most beautiful wee lass, two years of age. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd like to turn to John chapter 17. 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. We'll read the whole chapter. This is God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know its truth, that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now I'm coming to you, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And this is God's precious word. Just a prayer. Father, help us. We want to hear more than the voice of a man. We want to hear your voice as we come to the scriptures. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you'll agree with me, I'm sure you will, when I say that, strictly speaking, the Lord's Prayer is the prayer the Lord himself prayed here in John 17. We sometimes refer to the Lord's Prayer as the prayer he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on. But the Lord's Prayer, strictly speaking, is what we've just read together. It's frequently referred to as our Lord's high priestly prayer. And there's a good reason for that. You may remember that in the Old Testament, on the breastplate of the high priest in Israel, there were set 12 gems engraved with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the symbolism was that of the high priest carrying his people on his heart as he went before the Father on their behalf. And there's a parallel between what happened way back then with what is taking place here in John 17. Because here is the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, with his disciples looking on and listening in as he carries all of them. And indeed, all of us, on his heart, in prayer, before the throne. He knew then, way back then, and he knows now, as we gather here this morning, just how weak and broken we all are. He knows how much we need grace, his grace and strength. It's been suggested that this prayer that we've just read is so full of truth, so rich in content, and was uttered on so holy an occasion that it would probably be more beneficial for us to ponder it on our knees rather than hear it in a sermon preached from the pulpit. That's why this chapter is sometimes referred to as the holy of holies. The late Bishop Ryle of Liverpool said it's the most remarkable chapter in all the Bible. There's nothing like it. Now that's saying something. I don't know how familiar you are with John 17. This is the most remarkable chapter in all the Bible, he said. There's nothing like it. Very seldom in observing the prayer life of Jesus do the writers of scripture tell us what he prayed? They tell us when he prayed. They tell us where he prayed. They tell us why he prayed. They even tell us how he prayed. But very rarely do they tell us what he prayed. And never at such a length as we have here. 
Never in such detail as this. Now this prayer can be divided into three parts. But because of the constraints of time, we can only focus on one of those three parts. If we were to look at verses 1 through to 5, you've got Jesus praying for himself. It's not wrong to pray for yourself, is it? not necessarily a selfish prayer to pray for yourself. Certainly wasn't that on this occasion. He's praying for the Father to glorify him so that he will glorify the Father. So Jesus is praying for himself. Verses 1 through 5. Verse 6 through 19, Jesus is also praying for his original small group of chosen disciples who were with him at the time. It's simply impossible, I think, to calculate the impact this prayer must have had on their lives. The lives of those men as they listened to him praying to his father for them. So that they will be glorified. But this morning, we're focusing mainly on the final section of the prayer, beginning at verse 20. Here Jesus is praying for those who would believe on him, listen carefully, through the witness and testimony of those original disciples. In other words, Jesus is praying in these verses for the whole church, the church he's building. He's praying for the whole church throughout all of history. He's praying a way back then for us here. If we've savingly believed in him through hearing the word of the apostolic gospel. If we're real Christians this morning, if we've been born again, here is Jesus all these years ago praying for you. Praying for me. Amazing. I want to confine myself to the three main issues that really burdened him. As he prayed this prayer, verses 20 through 26, for all of his church throughout all of history. What's he praying? Can you just somehow sum it up in a few words? What's he praying? Well, the first thing he's doing here, I think, and it's the easiest one to draw out of the passage. He's praying for the unity of the church. The importance of Christian unity Today is something that cannot be denied, nor can it be overlooked. There are churches all over the country, all denominations, all over the world. And if we were to go in through the doors, they're in a state of schism, division, disarray, and disgrace. His Unity is something that cannot be ignored. If this was one of the last things our Lord prayed before he left this world, then it surely makes it one of the first things on our agenda as God's people. Unity. It's a matter of first importance. He tells us in verse 21 that the unity of believers is something that will make a powerful impact Upon the unbelieving world. His prayer for his redeemed church. The real church. 
is that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be one in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. Brothers and sisters, this is where the rubber hits the road for all of us. Unity not only moves the church to reach out to the world with what the world needs, but it moves the world to reach out to the church for what the church, his church alone, can give them. There is nothing, nothing that will attract the people of this world to faith in Jesus Christ more than seeing those who profess to be Christians being one in spirit, one in purpose, one in truth, and one in love. There's nothing that will convince the world of the truth of our message. Silence every argument raised against it more than a demonstration of our unity as believers in the Lord Jesus. On the other hand, there's nothing that will repel the world, cause the Christian message to be an object of ridicule, than to see the Christian church torn asunder by strife and division. Jesus knew these things would happen throughout history. That's why he's praying for the unity of his people. It was the Puritan Thomas Manton who nailed it when he said this. Divisions in the church breeds atheism in the world. That's how he put it. Schaefer from Millerby Fellowship in Switzerland, Fraser. Schaefer, he put it like this, we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christianity. I go along with that. But what exactly did our Lord Jesus Christ mean with regards to unity? When he said in verse 20, 21, my prayer is not for them alone, that's the other disciples, the 12 or the 11 of Judas had gone by that time. My prayer is not for them alone, the other disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's, that's, that's you and me. That all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be one in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. What did he mean by what he prayed there? You can't read those words and the rest of this prayer, can you? Without coming to the conclusion that Christian unity must never be at the expense of the truth, of the message, of the word of God. Unity simply has to be on the basis of truth. And that's why we must not, we cannot ever subscribe to the aims of the ecumenical movement. Spurgeon in the 19th century was absolutely right when he said the best way to promote unity is to promote truth. Let's hear what the Bible has to say. How many times in this prayer does our Lord emphasize the importance of truth. 
underlines the fact that there is no merit in seeking to advance a form of unity with those who have not taken the time to answer some very basic questions that are primary and that are foundational in the Bible. Questions such as, what is the gospel? What is a Christian? What is the church? No matter what the secular society may say, there is such a thing as truth, absolute truth. Even if it makes you or me being labelled as intolerant in saying so in the 21st century. Tolerance is the particular virtue of those who don't really believe in anything. we need to be careful. I'm not talking about secondary matters. As Christians, of course, we really ought not to be majoring on minors anyhow. When I speak of foundational issues, I'm thinking of primary gospel issues. And I believe Jesus is doing exactly the same in this prayer. People get excited at the prospect of bringing all the churches together. I remember when I first came to Musselburgh about 40 years ago, this was the big thing. Churches together. Churches together. But it mustn't be irrespective of what the Bible clearly teaches at a fundamental and foundational level. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, putting all the ecclesiastical corpses into one graveyard will not bring about a resurrection. Basic Biblical questions and answers must be agreed on first. Or we will find ourselves trying to hold hands with others in the dark. Unity in the dark is not what Jesus is praying about here. We're not to be hunting enthusiastically here and there like some politicians and some theologians looking for the lowest common denominator to bring us together. Unity must be tied down to a common adherence to the apostolic gospel. Sometimes in some parts of the Christian press, I'm sorry to say, there is also what the late R.C. Sproul referred to as a theology of accommodation in which the authentic is eclipsed by the counterfeit as the good news is traded for good feelings. That's not what the Lord had in mind. He had the unity on his heart, if you read the text carefully, is a biblical and a spiritual unity. It's not easy to define it exactly what he meant when he said earlier in the prayer, all of them may be one Father just as you are in me and I am in you. There's the standard. May they also be one in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The bottom line has to be that we are thinking about something supernatural here. Not necessarily denominational. He's telling us that the unity among his own followers is of a distinctly biblical and spiritual nature, similar to the unity that exists, listen, between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus prays to his Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they be one in us. He's comparing unity among believers with that unity that exists between the persons of the Holy Trinity. This prayer of Jesus is that our shared life together in the church as God's people should reflect the mystery 
of the shared life of the Godhead in the form of a trinity and unity. Now I know this is theological. Think it through. The unity within diversity for which he prays for us is to be a reflection of that unity in diversity seen in the Godhead. Is to resemble that oneness Jesus enjoys with the Father. Is to be patterned after it, even if it's not identical to it. It's based on that essential unity that exists between the Father and the Son. Not to mention, of course, the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are distinguishable, aren't they? And yet they are one. There is not a plurality of gods in the doctrine of the Trinity. There is only one true God, one true living God. God is one. But he is revealed in three distinct different persons. And as followers of Jesus, we are one church, but we are all different, aren't we? We can be distinguished from one another. I am me, and you are you. We're not called to be clones. We're different from each other in so many ways, and we will all have our differences, no doubt, when it comes to secondary issues, that's for sure. And yet... We are all one in Christ. The unity for which he prays is not some kind of institutional, organized unity. It's a supernatural, spiritual unity. And yet, it's to be seen. It's not just verbal, spouting out the doctrines. It's to be visible. It's a unity of life and love and message purpose based on gospel truth. We are all, if you like, to be singing from the same hymn sheet. Not a unity for us to achieve, a unity for us to embrace. We're not just meant to be one body. We who are many are one body. Through the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, and if we're Christians, we have all been baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ. Unity is not a goal we're chasing after. It's a ground we already stand on. If we have been truly born again and have become partakers of the divine nature, such an evangelical unity is a visible display that is so compelling and so unworldly, it's irresistible. How can 250 people in one place like Hamilton, or if you like, 200 people in a place like Musselboro, all different, be all one. Only God can do that. And it's this unity in the Holy Spirit that binds Christian to Christian because in spite of all our differences, we are all one in Christ. Only God can create it. We can create it. But what we can do by the grace of God is to make every effort to maintain it. And keep it. Because it's there. shows a lost world the power of the gospel. It's a vital ingredient to the credibility of the gospel message, which is the power of God unto salvation. It must be an evangelical and an evangelistic necessity if the world is to believe us. So he prays for the unity of the church. But he does something else. Don't misunderstand me here now. He prays for the glory of the church. If I were to ask you the question, what is the glory of God? What would you 
say. This is a massive subject. The word glory comes from a root word meaning heavy or weighty. In other words, this is not a light thing, a superficial thing. It's awesome. There's a sense in which the word glory is uniquely, of course, with reference to God. It's a word used when referring to his majesty, his beauty. We've been singing about it. The transcendence of God, the totality of all his attributes, all of which are perfect. What a glorious God he is. When Jesus prayed, he's not so much referring to those incommunicable attributes that are uniquely God. You know, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his sovereignty, his eternity, these attributes are uniquely his. We can only stand in awe and worship him because of who he is. But there are also communicable attributes, those attributes that he wants us to share and experience and demonstrate at a human level. What are you talking about, John? His mercy. His love. His kindness. His faithfulness. His goodness. His righteousness. His holiness. These are communicable attributes. You know, when I became a Christian in the 1960s, one of the first hymns I learned, some of you who are about the same age as me, and I'll not tell you how old that is, you probably know this hymn. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. Day I shall never forget. After I'd wandered in darkness away, Jesus my Savior I met. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He met the need of my heart. Shadows dispelling with joy, I am telling. He made all the darkness depart. How does the chorus go? Heaven came down, and glory filled my soul. When at the cross my Savior made me whole. My sins were washed away, and my night was turned to day. And heaven came down. And glory filled my soul. I began to realize very quickly as a young Christian over there in Wishaw that I hadn't just made an intellectual decision in becoming a Christian. You know, I have decided to follow Jesus. I was more than that. I had, by the grace of God, become the dwelling place of God. Jesus had come into my heart. Jesus is the glory, isn't he? He had seen me, he says, has seen the Father. He is the glory of God. He's the Lord of glory. He's the King of glory. And all that's found in Jesus. That God can communicate to people like you and me begins when we are born again. Philippians 1.6, it was one of the first verses I memorized. God has begun a good work in us and he's going to carry it on until it's complete. Yes, we can be justified freely by his grace. 
in an instant. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All our sins imputed to him as the reformers put it. All his righteousness imputed to me. The great exchange that Luther and Calvin and Knox discovered in the 16th century. It's all by grace alone. It's all through faith alone. It's all in Christ alone. However, we must never forget that justification completed the moment we trusted Jesus. Justification completed means that sanctification has just begun. And it's a work that's still going on and it won't be completed until we press the tape and until he takes us home. But the tragedy is that so often, and I include myself in this, so often through our own foolishness, through our own worldliness, through our own carelessness, through our own stubbornness, through our own self-centeredness and half-heartedness, instead of glory filling our souls, the glory has departed at times. Ichabod! We just go through the religious routines, but we've lost the wonder of his glory in our hearts. And when that happens, this unity will definitely take place. We've just heard the Lord praying here, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. He's praying and saying to his Father, I've given them, not just the original 11 or 12 that he had around him in that upper room, I've given them all those who would later believe on him, you and me, through the centuries, I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. So if you think unity is difficult to achieve, God says it's there, we are all one in Christ. It's the glory that can bring us to experience it. You know, when I was reading around on this subject here, I couldn't find anybody who had plumbed the depths of this. I couldn't find anybody who had fully defined what Jesus is talking about here or who clearly described what is meant by this. But just to try and at least touch it a wee bit, he's reminding all of us that in becoming Christians, oh, listen, we have become partakers of the divine nature. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives. God wants us through his grace to become God-like, godly people. He wants us to be like Jesus, not in the sense that we somehow become little gods. All believers are in Christ, the Bible tells us, and Christ is in them. That is the glory of the Christian life. Christ is the glory. Where is he? He's like the man, you know, from England who went to Wales in 1904 when the revival had broken out. He got off the train, I think, in Cardiff, and he went to a policeman and he said, can you tell me where the revival is? And the policeman opened his jacket and said, it's here. Is it here? Do you know what I'm talking about? Jesus could say, who here has seen me has seen the Father. God is in Christ. Here God manifest in the flesh. Christ is in us by the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and make us like Jesus. And that's a truly glorious thing. All that God is, is in Christ. You can't
cannot have more. And you need not enjoy less. And it's that experience that unites us together by one spirit as one body. There's been a work of grace and glory done by the Lord in the heart of every believer. And it has the capacity to produce the reality of unity based on truth with every other believer. And the Lord is praying that at ever deeper levels, the unity of purpose and wealth of love that tie God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit together will bind us together as the people of God. Young Carson, Don Carson, he's a, some of his material is absolutely wonderful. Don Carson says this, the thought is breathtakingly extravagant. And so it is. Time has gone too quickly. I'll need to jump quickly and leave some out. He prays for the unity of the church. Check it out yourself. Where does that unity come from? The glory that he gives us when he comes in here. We've got all the resources we need to live a life that will please him and keep us all together. Here's the last thing. He prays for the destiny of the church. As he continues this prayer, he addresses the Father in these terms. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. To see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Now when you read the Gospels, I'm sure you know this. Jesus manifested his glory during his earthly ministry on several occasions, but it was only temporarily. For example, at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, we're, we're told he manifested forth his glory when he changed the water into wine. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and John never forgot what they saw up there. They saw his glory. Peter, he says... We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John says, we beheld his glory. And what about the resurrection? When they all were in the room, with the doors locked, and he came. But it was all temporary. But one day, listen, we're going to be with him. And we're going to see him in all his glory. Forever. And that's our destiny. This is a most amazing request. He wants us to be with him. Can you believe that? You. Me. John Shearer, in your help. A pagan Protestant. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone. He wants me to be with him. He wants you to be with him. Not just to believe in him. Not just to be like him, but to be with him. this journey but we will never need to be born again again will we? or we will need to repent again and again and see that the Christian life consists of a series of new beginnings but our salvation is eternally secure the bridegroom wants his bride to be with him and nothing is going to stop that happening 
The lover wants those he loves to be with him. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And yet we must work at our relationship with him as we go on from grace to grace and from faith to faith and from strength to strength and from one degree of glory to another. But we must never lose sight of the fact that he wants us to be with him forever and to see his glory. Now I've taken those words on more than one occasion, spoken them at a funeral. Someone who was a faithful follower of Jesus. And I used the tenderness of that text as a word of comfort to those who had lost a loved one. I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. And that text provides more than a crumb of comfort because it reminds us of our eternal security. It reminds us of our eternal destiny. And when every child of God dies, it's actually an answer to this prayer of Jesus. And it's an arrival at that place that he's preparing for us and has been. We are absent from the body, but we are present with the Lord, with me where I am. Oh, here enough, we see by faith the glory of God in the face of Jesus. I read it this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In the place the Bible calls heaven, we will see him with clearer vision as faith gives way to sight. See him in all his glory as the great God and Savior that he is, the Lamb who is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. See him in the glory that he had with the Father before the creation of the world. Gaze on that awesome glory for all eternity. It's the climax to all that we've ever tasted of him here on earth. Do you know this hymn? Oh Christ, he is the fountain, the deep sweet well of love, the streams on earth I've tasted. More deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy, mercy doth expand and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. That's our destiny. That is our destiny. If we're numbered among those the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world, those who have come to the Son, Jesus, in repentance and faith as the result of a new birth, it is as it says in Romans 8 on that chain in which there are no weak links, those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Righteous Father, he concludes the prayer. Righteous Father, though the world doesn't know you, I know you. And they, that's us, know that you've sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. It's what he wants his church to see. It's what he wants his church to be in the midst of this crazy, mixed up, secular world that's lost and hell bound. He prays for our unity. It's a big thing. He prays for our glory. That's even bigger. He prays for our destiny. What, what a day that will be. I just read of Eric, not Eric, what's his name? Yeah, Eric Little, Chariots of Fire, when he was dying in the Japanese prison camp. This lady came to him, I think her name was Annie, and he said to her, his last words to her, Annie, it's absolute surrender. It's absolute surrender. 
That is what God wants from you and me today, tomorrow, the next day, until the day we draw our last breath. The best is always yet to be. Father, help us not only to understand something of these things, but in our hearts to hunger and thirst and know and feel and live these great truths until we breast the tape. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.